Section 7 of The City of Din. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amelia Chesley. The City of Din by Dan Mackenzie. As I sit here writing, there falls upon my ears the sound of church bells calling the faithful to worship, the faithless to thought. Now there are bells and bells. There are the singing bells of Chiswick, for example, so rich in overtones and harmonics that when they are rung down there by the river, an angelic choir seems to be blending its voices with the peal and to be filling the air with music celestial. So soft, so sweet, so mellow is the sound. In the olden days when the bell metal was fused before being poured into the mold, the people were advised that the more gold and silver they cast into the mixture, the more mellow would the bell sound. Sinon è vero e ben trovato. If it is true, however, the bells of Chiswick bear noble testimony to their patrons of long ago, whose piety we hereby gratefully acknowledge. Many of us, I dare say, can remember how Irving was wont to make Mephistopheles writhe and twist with anguish when he heard the church bells chiming. Alas, some of the bells that break the Sabbath nowadays must be sources rather of pleasure than of pain to the devil, by reasons of the sulfurous language they evoke among the parishioners. How beautifully those bells sound, said one old gentleman to another. Eh? What? I said, how beautifully those bells sound. Eh? What? I can't hear. I said... How beautifully those bells sound. Oh, damn, those infernal bells are making such a devil of a row, I cannot hear a word you say. In England, the established church alone seems to ring bells, save here and there when a solitary knell comes surreptitiously from the Roman Catholics, as if they were apologizing for intruding. But in Scotland, the home of warring sects, each kirk exercises its right to hang and to ring as many bells as it likes. Fortunately, there is a prejudice, probably economical, in favor of one kirk, one bell, and thus the evil is not unlimited. But all the same, a Sunday in Scotland in a town well belled is an experience in jar and jangle which is apt to cast doubts upon the principle of sectarianism. First, the old kirk starts off with a sound as if the clapper were shaking lumps of rust out of the bell. Then the united free, two kirks, two bells, chip in with a rich, not to say moneyed tone, followed by the Episcopalian tinkles, EU jangles, the old lichts, the Catholics, and so forth, for all the world as if they were clerical hounds giving tongue in a heresy hunt. And as each seems to be chasing the others, you have the argument in a circle, sounding and resounding as if it would continue to all eternity. But fortunately, however willing may be the spirit, the flesh in the beetles is weak, and one by one they leave off, so that you can hear once more the ripple of the burn and the hum of the bees in the peaceful sunshine. In the future world, I do not mean the heavenly world, in this world, in the future, I am sure that the inspector of nuisances will have among his duties the inspection, or rather, the audition of noises, including bells. 
why nuisances should be legally restricted to noisome smells and should exclude noisome sounds, I do not know. At any rate, in those coming days, there will be an end of the wild chaotic bob majors and clashes that shatter the peace of our starlit skies and serve no purpose but to elevate the conceit of the ancient disorder of bell ringers. Would they were bodily hung as high and their feelings rung as often as their bells are. There is, of course, in the sound of bells, especially when softened by distance, something that touches the depths of the heart. And we have all, I suppose, tried to copy Schiller in fitting words to chimes, merry words, gloomy words, and even big fateful words as when the Westminster bells toll out the hour. Rise they or fall, evil and just, one but and all shall end in dust. Doom. I remember years ago being first thrilled by this indescribable music. The steamer was leaving Fort Augustus after having threaded the locks on the Caledonian Canal. As it moved away across the lock, the wind carried its dirty smudge of smoke in a trail across the face of the Benedictine Monastery. And at that moment, the chapel bell rang vespers. It just seemed as if the flaunting spirit of modernity had smitten the ages across the mouth, and in return for the insult, had received the calm rebuke. I am the voice of unnumbered years. Thou shalt pass as thy smoke, but I, I shall endure to the end. There is a fine peal of bells in the handsome tower of the University of Glasgow, a peal that rings the quarters, that dead and gone benefactors of their race have given to the university students in that city of mist a group of beautiful buildings is common knowledge and the ineffaceable memory of the cloisters, turrets, and quadrangles is a lifelong pleasure to those fortunate enough to have been educated there. Comes as a climax to the beauty of hall, staircase, and archway, the mellow music and deep boom of the bells. One pauses. In such access of mind, in such high hour of visitation from the living God, thought is not. In enjoyment it expires. When, can you believe it, anticlimax of the nethermost? What is that little hurrying tinkle? Is it some extramural school jealous of its mighty neighbor, and impudently determined in this land of free din to assert its right to make a noise? Not a bit of it. The twopenny tinkle is also a university bell. A university bell? the university bell. It came from the old college in the high street, and so, a delightful non-sequitur, Mr. Professor of Logic, despite the painful incongruity, it is still rung to hurry the student to the classroom ere the door close. But oh for a petition to the high authorities who dispose of events upon those classic slopes, your petitioner humbly sheweth, and so forth, that the old bell is ridiculous, and he prayeth that you now grant it an eternal rest. Let it hang by all means, but let it hang silent. There are in Europe three cities of bells, Rome, Oxford, Edinburgh. Worlds apart in theological atmosphere though they be, in all three the bells seem to ring out very much the same sort of message. 
In all, the thoughts of even the careless and vagrant outsider are led to ponder for a moment over the deep mystery that underlies the rippling surface of events. Emphasizing the distinction between what appears and what actually is, their voice insinuates into the mind of the most worldly some hint of the great perhaps that has attracted and evaded curiosity since ever men began to think. Quote, there is a castle built over an abyss, through the gratings of whose dungeons come and go strange whisperings of wild hopes, unfathomable fears. End quote. The next of our sections is that which deals with music. It is necessary, first of all, for me to premise my remarks upon the subject with the declaration that I yield to no one in my love for music, which is only another way of saying that I am as susceptible as most of the influence of music upon the mind. Consequently, whatever strictures I may venture upon must not be scorned as the mere growling of a tone-deaf curmudgeon. In point of fact, however, a disclaimer of any kind is unnecessary, since I find myself supported and many of my views trenchantly expressed by no less an authority than Mr. Thomas Beecham, who, in a lecture reported in The Times on June 3, 1915, handles the subject of music as a public nuisance with some degree of vigor. Music, he says, forces itself into every entertainment from the drama to the cinema show. People cannot be allowed to meet for conversation or a meal without having their ears assaulted with music, generally of the worst type, and all because those trained to practice music as a fine art cannot earn a living without becoming a public nuisance. Its perpetual din makes the mass of people insensitive to the finer aspects of music, and a public revolt from its tyranny is to be expected. Unfortunately, the insensitiveness which such music breeds raises an effective barrier against it. When one lives constantly in a noise, one ceases to long for silence. The reader may in this connection recall sympathetically the frequent complaint in von Hohenlohe's memoirs, thus, quote, sat at dinner beside the Freifrau von Süßerlippen, a most charming lady, but unfortunately, the band made such a noise that it was impossible for us to converse. End quote. Mr. Beecham's remarks imply that so accustomed have the people of the present day become to din, that even in their moments of idleness and retirement, they cannot bear to be deprived of their normal environment of uproar. Although this is probably true of a large section of the community, there are yet in Israel 7,000 which have not bowed the knee unto Baal and it is as their prophet that I speak. To us, that only is music which, gentle and appealing, touches the finer emotions exclusively. Roughness and violence, though not strength and vigor, are foreign to it. In truth, it is only in darkest Germany that roughness and violence are mistaken for strength and vigor. In civilized countries, they are recognized to be merely weakness in masquerade. Blaring music is, in a word, noise, and the vilest of all noise, for lilies that fester stink far worse than weeds. This kind of bastard music has found its most perfect exponent and most accurate interpreter in D'Souza, typical product of the loudest and noisiest of all civilizations, the American. Every nation has the music it deserves. 
Some might be inclined to couple Wagner with D'Souza, but Wagner only reaches at rare intervals and in odd moments the plateau of screams whereon the more modern genius revels. Wagner is incapable of anything like sustained flight amid the thunderclouds where D'Souza rides the whirlwind and directs the storm. At those sublime heights his feebler pinions fail him, and he is fain to sink to lower and gentler levels where he is more at ease. The ride of the Valkyries, for example, is all too brief, and its rushing violence is, quite patently, mere forcible feebleness. D'Souza, on the other hand, could blare forth a similar theme with such sustained and effective power, such almighty and devastating force, that nothing less than an artificial membrana timpani could suffer intact the crash of the elements upon his mountaintop. Hail D'Souza, triumphant expositioner of transatlantic din, conquering and to conquer. In vocal music, I dare not call it singing, in vocal music, on the other hand, Wagner has certainly achieved this much success, that only vocal cords of a leathery texture are capable of enduring the force he demands of them. One result of this is, as every teacher of singing knows only too well, that so great is the strain thrown upon the voices of modern operatic singers, that only a few of them, and those not the finest, can retain their quality unimpaired for more than a few years. Basses and contraltos must always be deep and impressive, tenors and sopranos high and thrilling. The other result is an addition to the din of the city. Some years ago, I used to reside in the neighborhood of the Paddington Railway Terminus and a lady vocalist. When, at frequent intervals, the air was rent by a shriek, one was really never quite sure whether it was proceeding from the railway station or from the lady's larynx. Operatic managers who desire that vocalist's address can have it on application. Previous to the Teutonic era in music, we had the Italian, the vogue of which extends back as far as the time of Addison and Steele. For in The Spectator, you will find several essays upon that craze, which, mutato nomine, might have been written yesterday. Now, while German music is forceful and violent, the music of the theatrically strong man, Italian music, with its scales and runs, its grace notes and trills, is the music of the contortionist. Both alike are radically base and false, and both alike are the products of thoroughly bad art. Virtuoso music, whether vocal or instrumental, as compared with true music, is like false compared with true eloquence. The one, like moonlight, draws attention to the producer. The other, like sunlight, directs attention to the subject. At the present moment, there is needed in music, and especially in vocal music, a movement back to nature. Music awaits its millet. Indeed, in all music of the would-it-were-impossible type, the world awaits its reformer, someone stern and uncompromising, not to say fanatical, an iconoclast, a musical John Calvin, and the first idol he will hail forth and smash will be the domestic piano. While all this is true, however, I do not for a moment intend my strictures to apply to anything but certain varieties of modern music. On the other hand, 
Much of the orchestral music of our day is certainly admirable in its grace, refinement, and power. With all its irregularities and extravagances, and in spite of many will-o'-the-wisp adventures, never before in the history of the world has music reached such heights of splendor and such depths of meaning as it does at the present day. Its very errors are only the errors of youth and high spirits. Indeed, the modern development of fine music might almost be regarded by the philosopher of quiet as the provision of a sanctuary of refuge in the heart of our city of Din, where not only the bruised spirit, but also the aching ear may find rest and healing. The modern man's music is his reaction to the crashing noise about him. Who has not observed how the pathétique is heightened in effect? when through the music you can hear the street traffic. The storm cloud sets off the rainbow. The garish daylight enhances the rosy hue of St. Chapelle. It is the contrast, you say. My very point. It is the contrast that has made this music. Seek a remedy for noise, and you will find it in music. In music, not in silence. Music it is that relaxes and relieves the fret and strain of noise. True music, mind you, not the bastard music of our denouncing, which is merely a mode of noise. End of section 7